Please be seated. As you do, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, as we continue in our series on the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her, to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the, little, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the, the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your word, that we might be changed by your spirit, that we might come to know and believe and trust in Jesus Christ and to grow in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks we looked at Christ, Christ in the school of faith and Christ in the school of greatness. And today we look at Christ in the school of marriage and children. And we find that Jesus is teaching. That's the emphasis here in chapter 10, verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus has moved from the northern regions of Israel uh, from Galilee down to Judea. And then he's crossed the Jordan River into an area called Perea. And uh, unlike what he was uh, doing most recently in Galilee, he was only teaching his disciples. Here he has gone back to teaching both the crowds and the disciples. What is it that he is teaching? And so he's teaching essentially what my two points for the sermon today are. God loves marriage, and so should you. And the second point is Jesus loves the little children, and so should you. God loves marriage. And so should you. Now, here are a few comments from Dartmouth College students when they were asked the question, what does marriage mean to you? Here's just a sampling. Marriage is is formalizing a relationship in the eyes of the government, but that relationship is a forever friendship where you just make each other as happy as possible as long as possible. A second student responded, marriage to me means someone who's your teammate for life and inspires you every day to be extraordinary. 
Another student said, the legal and purely legal unification of two people's state-defined benefits like private property, capital, power of attorney. And then my final example, marriage is a means of formalizing a romantic commitment between people. You know, people are psychologically more likely to keep promises that are written down or otherwise formalized. Yeah, marriage is a psychological mind trick. What is marriage? Well, we find that Jesus answers that question in response to a test question from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not really interested in Jesus' answer uh, other than what they can do to catch him. And so in verse 2 of chapter 10, the Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we don't know exactly what it is that Jesus, they were trying to catch Jesus in. Maybe they were just trying to get public sentiment against him because there was some controversy about this. Some have suggested that this area of Perea is where King Herod, uh, the King Herod that uh, took the head of John the Baptist off uh, over the issue of divorce, and so maybe, uh, maybe, he's trying to, maybe they're trying to do that. We don't know, but we do know that they're up to no good. And so Jesus uh, says to them in response, well, what did Moses command you? And they responded, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This is from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And then Jesus responded, Moses wrote you this commandment as a response to your hardness of heart regarding marriage, right? Not because divorce is the plan of God for humanity. And so Jesus then began to speak not of divorce, but of marriage. What is marriage? What is marriage all about? And so he starts by saying, God created humans, male and female. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, uh, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There is humans come in two models, male and female. And uh, it wasn't kind of an accident. God wasn't sitting back and saying, hmm, we'll see how this thing plays out. Oh, I see we've got, you know, not two in two types. We've got three types, four types. No, God created them male and female. And then male and female are designed by God to be physically united. Mark 10, 7, and 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, what that means is that it's God's design uh, within marriage uh, for the apparatus to fit purposely. Okay, I can say that in a not too uh, overt way. God designed male and female for a purpose. And God designed one male and one female to have a one flesh union in marriage. Now that union is not less than physical sexual union, but it is more than that. We read uh, further in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Right? And so what was the problem? The problem at the beginning uh, before Adam, uh, Eve was created, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper 
Now, what does that word helper mean? That word helper uh, is often used of God. God is our ezer in the Hebrew. God is our helper. And so it's not a demeaning word at all to say that Adam needed a helper and Eve was created as his helper. Adam was in desperate need of Eve. And so man and woman together, what is marriage about? It is about the, uh, the deepest uh, companionship and intimacy that two human beings can have in a God-ordained relationship other than our relationship with Jesus Christ himself through faith in him. And so we see that God had this design for marriage. Again, it was a past design. It was, it was from eternity. God had planned it to be this way. But then also in space and time, as people are married, it is God who brings them together. So it doesn't matter if you're two Christians If you're two Muslims, if you're two atheists, whether you know or don't know these things, when people are married, it's not simply a human institution. When they come together in marriage, God has united them, male and female. And so Jesus says the implication of that is this. Whom God has joined together, let not man separate. Right? Now keep in mind, he's speaking to the... um, He's speaking to the Pharisees, right? And so Jesus uh, doesn't answer all their questions and doesn't answer all our questions here. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Um, We'll talk a little bit about some of the particulars, but Jesus pointedly is looking at the foundations of it in answering the Pharisees to call out their hard-heartedness. He does a similar thing. I think it's going to be in in, uh, chapter 12. Uh, where the Pharisees come with the Herodians, representatives of the government, with another question to trap Jesus. And they say, Jesus, we just have a little question for you. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Very controversial subject. Jesus pulls out, give me a coin. Whose likeness is on this coin? Caesar. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Mm. <laughs> Not going to catch Jesus, right? He presents the principle. And so the principle is that God has created marriage as a union of male and female and that it should not be separated because God has brought them together. Man should not separate it. So this reveals a heart problem that the Pharisees have. They, want a, they not only want... Uh, They not only want to catch Jesus, they want a way out of marriage. Jesus refers to them and even the action in the days of Moses to be an example of that hard-heartedness. And so my first question for you today, before we get into some of the particulars, is just do you love marriage? Do you love the institution of marriage? Um, You might not even be married. Um, you, you might, God might call you to singleness, whether you might not want to be single, but God maybe has called you to singleness for a time, or, or maybe that's, you know, the, the, the Bible says that there are some who have the gift of celibacy, the gift of singleness, uh, but it doesn't matter. Uh, do you value marriage? And certainly some marriages are more difficult, and some marriages are, uh, I guess you'd say, better, uh, less difficult, 
And yet, uh, do we value marriage as God valued marriage? It's his idea, his, his institution, his uh, bringing together for uh, the benefit of people. He has done it. He's brought them together. So do we value marriage? And then Jesus answers uh, the question when he is with the disciples. Uh, and and he, talks, he talks specifically about the, the law, okay? And so this law, again, I'll just quote it now from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and that latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, and then this is, the, this is where they're getting, this is where the law gets, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, we are not going to uh, spend a great deal of time on this because that's not the focus of this particular passage. I would say it is the particular focus on Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, which I preached a sermon on uh, a couple years ago. So uh, if you want more info, look it up. I'll be glad to speak with you about it as well, where Jesus is specifically addressing Matthew 24. But the, the general idea is this, that God did not uh, make a law against divorce, but he brought, he said, if you do divorce, there is a negative repercussion. That negative repercussion is if your wife remarries, you may never remarry her again. So try to think of some way in our contemporary, I need to ask a lawyer for an example of this, but it'd be sort of like if there's no law against uh, leaving, uh, leaving the scene of an accident, you know, it's not outlawed, uh, you run into somebody, and according to Florida law, if it's a certain dollar amount, you need to pull over and wait for the police to come, and, uh, and, but there's no law, let's say, and you, and you leave the scene of the accident, but there is a law on the books that says if you leave a scene of the accident without, um, uh, without uh, waiting for the police to show up, you may never drive again. It, it says a little bit about the intention of the lawgiver, that there's a negative repercussion for it. And so Jesus stated that in, in God's economy at the time of Moses, because of the hard-heartedness of the Israelites, Part of it was to protect the woman who was divorced, that she would receive the certificate of divorce and she would not be accused of immorality. Uh, in such a case, um, she was able to, to remarry. Now, let's get to what Jesus says to his disciples, Mark 10, 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so, again, Jesus states the principle, and the principle is this, that God has brought man and woman together in marriage, and um, whom God has joined together, let not man separate. 
Um, and if man attempt, attempts to separate and they are remarried, they commit adultery because God has not separated that, them. Now, what about this, Ron? What about that, Pastor? What about this? Uh, again, I'm not going to answer every particular question you might have. Um, but the question that I will answer is, are there exceptions to that rule in Scripture? And the answer is yes, there are two. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5:32, and then also addresses this and uses the same language in Matthew 19, which is a parallel of our passage today. And it adds this: that if you're, uh, if unless it is for the grounds of adultery, that is physical sexual immorality, uh, you commit adultery in divorcing and remarrying. Okay, but there is a grounds in which it is permissible. It is not required, but it is permissible in Scripture that you would divorce your spouse and remarry, and it would not be considered adultery. That is, if, in fact, your spouse has committed sexual immorality, physical sexual immorality. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 adds to it and says, if a, a believer and an unbeliever are married in the a probable scenario is two people don't know Jesus Christ, and then one uh, comes to know Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, at this point in, in the book of First Corinthians, the Corinthians are, are asking him many questions. Paul, what about this? What about that? What about this? And so the question is asked to the Apostle Paul, well, what if I've become a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian? Do I divorce them? And the Apostle Paul says, No. You remain married to them. But if they leave, if they abandon you and leave you, uh, then you may divorce them and get remarried. Okay? So those are two scenarios. Adultery and an abandonment by an unbeliever. Right? So um, we get back again to the, to the standard. Uh, and, and let me say this, that just because somebody has grounds for divorce doesn't mean uh, that your marriage is over, it can't be salvaged. And certainly there are people that work very, very hard at salvaging their marriage and uh, are unsuccessful even after um, there's been offense like adultery. Um, I think of one instance, and I mentioned this when I preached on Matthew chapter 5, where there was a couple in our church in another location, uh, not when I was a pastor here, And um, uh, the man came to me and said, my wife has left me. She's taken off. She's moved about 45 minutes away. Uh, They're both members of our church. And so um, uh, he was upset. Uh, There had been no no offense, um, uh, no adultery on his part, but he was was very upset about it. And he he wanted to remain married. He wanted to work on his marriage, but uh, she really would have none of it. And so another woman on staff at our church got in touch with her, and things looked like they were heading uh, south and, and, and not good. Um, and I thought, well, this looks like it's heading for divorce. And uh, this woman who was meeting with his wife said to me, I've been talking to her. I think we can work this thing out. I said, okay. So we waited, we prayed, we met with them for months. And uh, this was about the time, months later, that I was leaving the church to take another job. And um, the man said uh, to a small group we were in, 
uh, I'm going out on my first date with my wife again. And so that was the process was the beginning, and they were getting together. So I leave. Again, months later, I'm in a whole other city and worshiping in church. And who walks in? But this couple, they walk in. And they said, we are uh, on Harley's on vacation, driving around the country, riding around the country, and we just want to come and show you what God has done. God has accomplished in our marriage. Now, what that taught me as a fairly young pastor is this. Um, He would have been uh, potentially right, eventually, in divorcing his wife if things had not worked out and she had abandoned him and she was not submissive, wouldn't come back submissive to the church, good case for that. But you can be right and you can have two different outcomes, right? So you can, you can work at it and affect a different outcome. Now, again, it doesn't always work out that way, but my point is this. My point is that we should value marriage, that we should seek to support people in their marriages. Uh, some of us are going through difficult times We should do everything we can to pray for and encourage people in their marriages. And let me also say this, that um, because a number of you, I I don't know your situations, you may be divorced and thinking, what is my status? You know, I don't know that I had biblical grounds for divorce. And the reality is that um, God forgives. And I'm not saying that in some way to wink at sin, but all of us sin And all of us need to repent of our sins, and God forgives us of our sins. So that doesn't, I'm not saying that you should go out and marry somebody uh, if that would be committing adultery in God's eyes. But what I am saying is if that's happened, God will forgive sin. So, um, and we'll see that in just a minute that God forgives our sins, that we have to come to Him like a little child who is needy, who is unable to save ourselves. So uh, lots, of, lots of detail that I've left out. If you have any questions, please feel free to call me or meet with me. But the main point is that God values marriage, and we should value marriage as well. Secondly, Jesus loves the little children, and so should you. Now, the disciples had a very different idea of children. They weren't worth their time, and they weren't worth Jesus' time. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 says this, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Uh, Just as we looked at contemporary views of marriage, let's look at a few contemporary views of children, uh, this time from celebrities. Okay, this was found in um, Us Magazine, the March 18th edition. Zoe Kravitz says, I don't feel pressure to have kids by a certain time. If I ever have kids, I still want to go on adventures, have fun nights, and see the sunrise. It's been an interesting journey of remembering that there's no finish line that I have to get to by a certain time. Playful, mischievous behavior is something I always hope to have, even when I'm 70 years old. The point of being alive is to experience life and to play with it. There's still so much fun to be had. Steve-O is engaged to Lux Wright. And says, neither of us want to have kids. In lieu of that, we want to do what we want to do is just pour ourselves into helping animals. So we've got a plan to buy a big property and open up our own animal sanctuary. And then finally, Sarah Paulson of the American Horror Story 
says, I don't want to be torn by children. I don't want to look at my child and say, you're the most extraordinary thing that has ever happened to me, but also the death knell. It's selfish, but I think the word selfishness gets a bad rap. What is our concept of children? Jesus values children, and so should we. And again, that's whether you're a couple and have children, or you're a couple and don't have children, or whether you're single and don't have children, uh, we are to value children because Jesus values children. It says here, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's one of the strongest terms used to reference an attitude of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples' attitude was bad, but understand that the contemporary attitude outside of Israel regarding children in Roman, in Hellenistic, Greek-speaking cultures was even worse. There's a letter that remains that, that uh, has been found that was sent from Alexandria, Egypt on June 17th in the year 1 B.C., Uh, A husband is away from his wife. His wife is expecting a child. Uh, He doesn't expect to get back by the time the child is born. And he says to his wife, if it is a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. And this has reference to the Roman practice of exposing infants that one didn't want on a wall uh, to allow them to die after birth. Now, even in our day and age, there are some that would argue uh, regarding abortion that uh, viability is one of, the, uh, one of the arguments that they say, that, that uh, the, the woman should be allowed to have abortion uh, until the point of viability when the child can survive outside the womb. The reality is is a child can't survive outside of the womb the day the child is born. It uh, can't survive out of the womb in year one, in year two, in year three. Uh, you, you allow a child to roam across uh, someplace unprotected. They can't feed themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't help themselves. And really, this is the aspect of childhood that Jesus is specifically referring here to. You know, people say, well, what does it mean to come like a little child? Uh, to Jesus, that to the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must come as a little child. And people say, well, children are so innocent. Uh, have you had a child? Have you been a child? I mean, do you remember? Uh, you know, children are so innocent. They're so selfless. They only care about their fellow siblings and other people around them. They're not focused on themselves. No, they're so humble. Right? They're so, in terms of their attitude, they, they, think, um, they think so much more highly of other people than they do themselves. No, Jesus is not talking about, oh, pure, innocent little children. What he's saying is, let the little children come to me. They're helpless. The kingdom of God is just like that. If you want to come and be part of the kingdom of God, you must come like a little helpless child that cannot help himself, cannot help herself. And Jesus says, come to me, little children. 
The Apostle Paul says this about himself. The Apostle Paul, um, you may not know, but he had quite the resume in terms of how uh, wonderful he could be in terms of his uh, standing before God. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got a resume here. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Try to outdo me, people. You can't outdo me. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death and that by, may, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I, how is it that I'm going to attain the kingdom of God, the resurrection of the dead after I die? How will I go on to be with Jesus? And will my body be resurrected when Jesus returns? How will I experience all the wonders of what it means to be with God forever? How, I, how will I experience the wonder of the gift of heaven and eternal life and not hell and punishment It's not because of what I bring uh, to the equation. He says, all of that pedigree, all of the resume, I jettison. I give up. I don't present myself as somebody that has earned or deserved a way into the kingdom of God, into eternal life. But instead, I come seeking forgiveness and come seeking the righteousness of Christ. Christ is righteous. Christ is perfect. Christ is the only one who has accomplished it. And he came to be your representative, to do what you could not do, sent from God. And so we come by faith. We come receiving the gift by faith. And so Jesus Christ says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so what did Jesus do? He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the novel Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist was set in the 1800s in England in what we would think of as uh, an orphanage, a a parish workhouse. Um, And there, uh, the boys in this novel uh, were were, uh, issued uh, three meals a day. And that three meals a day consisted of uh, thin gruel. Um, I, I looked up what gruel was this morning. And it's basically a watery oatmeal so thin that you could drink it. Okay, so three times a day. So think of this, kids. This is what you get to eat. You get to eat watery oatmeal three times a day. Twice a week, you get to eat an onion. And once a week on Sundays, you get half a roll. Okay, that's what Oliver Twist was eating. And so essentially, he was slowly starving. And so the most famous scene, whether you've read the book or you've seen the play or whatever is where Oliver Twist comes up, and and what does he do? Timidly, he goes up. And so I'll read at this point from the book. He was desperate with hunger, 
and reckless with misery, he rose from the table and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, please, sir, I want some more. What, said the master at length in a faint voice. And then again, he said, please, sir, I want some more. And then the master referred to somebody else in the room and said, what do you think of that? And he said in response, that boy will be hung. I know that boy will be hung. So let me ask you, when you come to Jesus, when you come to God and you say, I'm needy, I'm helpless. And by the way, parents, the parents were bringing the kids to Jesus too. They had to be pretty young. Jesus took them in his arms and he blessed them. He said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so that is what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does with all of us. If we would only come to him, if we would only admit that we are helpless and that we are needy, and that by rights we deserve to be turned away from God forever in hell, but because of the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, he says, come to me, you little children. Come to me, you who are needy. And I will take you in my arms and bless you for all eternity. Father, we do come to you today. Acknowledging our need. And we are so thankful. We're so thankful that Jesus receives us as little children, needy, if we would only come. And so I pray that we would. I pray that we would, even if we've never in our life done that, if we've always thought that somehow I've got to be good enough to come to God. Uh, Maybe for the first time we come to Jesus, or maybe we just need that reminder that that is how things work in the economy of God. That is how things work in the kingdom of God. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we praise God for blessing us, don't we? We praise God. He gives us blessings in Jesus Christ. He takes us in his arms. And so we're going to sing of that. Um, We're going to sing uh, the hymn, Gospel Doxology. And it's the doxology. What is doxology? It's praise. It's praise for who God is, how great God is, and what God has done for us. So think about that as you sing uh, the words of the hymn today. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat>